This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener, and today we'll be looking back on the historic Paris climate talks with Rebecca Solnit. She covered the talks and the demonstrations in Paris for Harper's. Also, there's a new famous Canadian, Justin Trudeau, the new prime minister. His election marks the end of 10 years of conservative rule. John Powers went to Ottawa to talk to him. He'll talk to us later in the podcast. First up, the white working class is dying. Literally, middle-aged white working class men are killing themselves directly or indirectly. Suicide is way up, and so are deaths from drug overdoses and from chronic liver disease caused by excessive drinking. This is happening at the same time that the death rates of all other Americans continue to fall. It's a shocking discovery and a revealing one. For comment, we turn to Barbara Ehrenreich. She's a hero of ours. She's founding editor of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and the author of many books, including the classic Nickel and Dimed on Not Getting By in America, now in a 10th anniversary edition with a new afterword. And most recently, she's written the autobiographical book, Living with a Wild God, a non-believer's search for the truth about everything. Barbara Ehrenreich, welcome to the program. Good to be with you, John. First, let's review the evidence about death rates in America, which surprised the demographers and everybody else. This is not the kind of thing that's supposed to happen. We sort of automatically assume that things are getting better, that people eat better, that people get better health care, and, we'll, you know, longevity has been increasing for quite a while in all groups. But now um, poor whites are beginning to look really in trouble. Yeah, they t- these, this is uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, Princeton economist who found the statistics for for whites aged 45 to 54 who have a high school diploma or less, their death rates rose by more than 20%. You have said uh, there are some practical reasons why white people are more efficient than black people at killing themselves. Well, uh, one is that white people are more likely to possess guns. Yeah. And guns are the most common means of suicide in this demographic. The other, uh, another one I would 
suggest, although this is more anecdotal than anything, is that whites are more likely to be prescribed opioids, the drugs that, you know, seem to be, uh, well, along with heroin, kind of epidemic in among poor white populations. And opioids, you know, I'm offered them very often for back pain. <laughs> I know. And I know that my friends who are black and uh, Latino are not. Right-wing pundits have an explanation for the rising death rate uh, among middle-aged working-class white people in America. Generous social programs, they say, have created a culture of dependency and despair, and secular humanists have undermined traditional values. Basically, we are told, the modern welfare state is driving people to drug addiction and suicide. I wonder if you have any comment. Well, it's hard to comment seriously on that. We're talking about poor white people. Yeah. And they don't suffer from an excess of uh, welfare or government help in any form, mm-hmm. just as poor black people don't. Well, there are some, some complications in the health statistics here. Latinos have lower incomes than whites who are poor, and they face the same kind of job problems in our deindustrialized economy, but Latinos are not dying at the same rates as as uh, as white people, do you have any idea why not? Well, this is a guess too, because the, this would take some careful work. But I, I sense that Latinos are more likely to have strong, extended family connections. Yes, and communities. Yes, that they are more likely to be recently from a culture uh, where solidarity was important. You know, the middle-aged older or older white person, in my experience, is often living in a trailer and, you know, has some connection with people around in the trailer park or something. But it's not the same as having a, a large community of extended family. There's some reason to think that social interactions and a kind of social support you have from other people can be important in prolonging life and increasing health. So looking at the situation of uh, working class and poor uh, white middle-aged men, obviously they have suffered tremendously from the deindustrialization we've seen in the last, what, 30 years. Uh, We've also had desegregation. Do you think that's played a part? Well, certainly the deindustrialization just took away the way of life of so many working-class Americans. The, un- the good union jobs that, you know, worked for the generation before me and generations before that aren't there anymore. Now you're more likely to have contingent work, at lower pay. A-, a way of life came apart in the 80s and 90s as jobs were sent away to other parts of the world. As for desegregation... You know, I, again, this is speculative. Yes. But uh, at one point, um, I think it was easier for white people to feel superior, at least to black people. And that was like, that's the bottom level, right? So mm-hmm. if you're white, you're always somewhat ahead of that. You know, you're always on top of that. But that sense of superiority has been undermined 
by a lot of things, thank goodness. <laughs> you know, certainly one was desegregation and greater opportunities for black people. But, you know, another part of it is the whole stereotype of black people, which was, say, 30 years ago or 40 years ago of, of rural kind of people who didn't talk right, weren't very smart, weren't, weren't educated, rural bumpkins. That was the black image. Then in the 60s and from then on, that was replaced by a new image, a very, very articulate, I mean, there can't be any more a musical style more articulate than rap. Right. And, you know, people who knew their way around the city, and often in our forms of entertainment, it's the, the white folks who are the rural idiots now. And I, I'm please, I'm not, you know, <laughs> it's not my description of them. But I'm thinking like of uh, Duck Dynasty. Oh, yeah. And who here comes Honey Boo Boo. <laughs> it's painful. And Homer Simpson. Oh, God, yes, I forgot. <laughs> oh, so obvious, yeah. <laughs> We also need to talk about the politics here, the, the middle-aged white working-class people who are not becoming drug addicts or alcoholics or committing suicide uh, have become Republicans. And uh, this year, they're Donald Trump Republicans. Uh, how do you understand this political development? I think the big thing about Trump, which has been visible for quite a while, is he's, he's willing to express more racial hostility than any of the other Republicans. It's, it's like, oh, he's willing to say it. So the choices facing middle-aged uh, white working-class people in America seem to be right now, become a Republican and support Donald Trump, or take drugs and commit suicide. I wonder if there is another <laughs> route. Is there another route, Barbara Ehrenreich, for the white working class? <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> yes, and then there are the, the, all the numbers of people. I have known in exactly this demographic who have been organizing for progressive social change. It's another thing that can really help your health, actually, if that's what you're concerned about, and build a sense of community around you. There's a group in Maine called Food and Medicine, and that sort of says it all. You should be able to afford both. That's their radical premise. Barbara Ehrenreich, she wrote about the great die-off of America's blue-collar whites for Tom Dispatch and The Nation. Thank you, Barbara. Oh, my pleasure. Now it's time to talk about last week's agreement in the Paris Climate Talks. It's been praised as a landmark deal to slow climate change and global warming. For comment, we turn to Rebecca Solnit, writer, historian, and activist. She's the author of, I think it's 16 books about the environment, landscape, community, art, and politics. She wrote the book on mansplaining. It's called Men Explain Things to Me. And she also wrote Hope in the Dark, which I think about almost every day. Her most recent book, I think, is Unfathomable City and New Orleans Atlas. She reported on the Paris Climate Talks for Harper's Magazine, where she also writes a monthly column. We reached her today in San Francisco. Rebecca Solnit, welcome. Thank you. We read a lot that the Paris Agreement on the Climate is not perfect. How would you describe it? 
You know, I've been reading lots of opinions from people who are ecstatic to people who are furious, people who think it's terrible, people who think it's, you know, a huge step forward. And I tend to just feel kind of rabbinical that everybody's right. Uh, A lot of people wanted things they didn't get. The scientist Michael Mann, a really important figure on climate change research, points out that it doesn't get us there, but it gets us halfway there. And... I tend to feel really rabbinical that everybody's right. It is inadequate. There's tremendous brutality in its tolerance of kind of free market capitalism to continue doing its thing. It's not specific enough about some things. Naomi Klein pointed out it never even uses the phrase fossil fuel. But it's widely regarded as the announcement that the age of fossil fuel is over and that we have to move on and will move on. And it does contain a lot of agreements and uh, language to make that happen. And that matters. The Nation magazine's uh, reporter from Paris wrote, quote, the celebratory tone of politicians' statements, news coverage, and even most of the comments from American NGOs overlooks how lethally punishing this agreement will be for huge masses of people in the global south. Uh, He said, quote, tens of millions of people in poor and vulnerable regions such as Bangladesh and parts of Africa and Asia are being doomed to homelessness, impoverishment, and death with children predicted to bear the brunt of the suffering, that such a heartless future is applauded as success in the global north only reminds us how tragic, indeed criminal, this agreement is, close quote. That's Mark Hartsgaard. What do you think of that? Um, well, let me see how rabbinical I can get. You know, is this worse than not having a treaty? It's definitely not worse than not having a treaty. Does it solve everyone's problems and make climate change go away like a bad bogeyman? No, it, do- it doesn't do that either. You know, it is I people from Bangladesh and the Pacific Island nations that are the most threatened, and a lot of these other deeply threatened places were there, convened into the coalition of most vulnerable countries. And some of them, you know, would exactly agree with that. No, it, it does not prevent bad things from happening in these places, and bad things are already happening in these places nor does it completely fix everything by making fossil fuel disappear from the earth or disappear from use tomorrow. So it's not that people are saying, like, yay, the Maldives are going underwater. They're saying, like, oh, my God, 196 countries agreed on something. It's a mixed bag. I think it makes things better. I don't think it makes them good enough. I think, as Bill McKibben said early on, it doesn't save the world. It makes it slightly more possible for us to do it. The news in the mainstream media has been about the nation states, the world leaders, the presidents, the secretaries of state. But I I have heard there was a protest movement in Paris uh, that was crucial to to whatever good things the world leaders did. Is is this true? You know, there were demonstrations, particularly the Sunday before. I think that they were good. I think that their presence mattered. But when I think about the demonstration that really influenced the conference, I think of the 400,000 people who showed up in New York City on September 21st, 2014, 15 months before. uh, The whole world was there and in related demonstrations in other countries. And that was really when civil society showed 
tremendous power, tremendous commitment, and said, we need to do more, we need to do it fast. So that, for me, was the decisive demonstration. I know you went to a a canoe launch at sunrise on one of the canals of Paris. Uh, Tell us about that. The group Amazon Watch works with uh, some Ecuadorian tribal people who are threatened both by climate change indirectly and very directly by the fact that there's oil under their land and, uh, you know, oil companies want to ravage their homeland as they have that of other Native people in Ecuador. Uh, This is a very tough group that's been fighting. And they brought one of their traditional dugout canoes to Paris. They originally wanted to launch it in the Seine on the weekend, but it got held up in customs. I don't know how hard it is to inspect an object that consists of a single piece of wood, but it got held up in customs, and they weren't allowed, because of terrorism, to launch it in the Seine, the river running through Paris itself, so they launched it on the canal. But it was still this beautiful and amazing thing, and they gave a little press conference before in Spanish with translation into French and English, and the... Two members of the tribe were who spoke were just tremendously articulate, and they said that this is the canoe of life. And then they launched this boat, which had a hummingbird fish uh, figurehead at the prow and serpents carved alongside and seats shaped like animals, and they paddled up and down. And it was this tremendously moving thing. Well, kind of the, the opposite of that was your interview with the new premiere of Alberta. The the Alberta tar sands are the third biggest petroleum deposits on Earth. This is a newly elected uh, woman. She told you that the new uh, government of Alberta would manage the tar sands responsibly and in a sustainable way. I guess that sounds uh, responsible. <laughs> oh my God, that was an amazing interview. I I think what they wanted me to focus on was the nice energy plan for Alberta as a province, what people in Alberta themselves are going to consume. But she's hell-bent on continuing to extract the tar sands, which is some of the dirtiest crude on earth. Tar sands in a responsible way is like, I'm going to feed you kosher bacon. You know, I'm going to feed you vegan ham. And the tar sands are irresponsible. For me, the whole encounter was kind of shocking because... You could understand why Saudi Arabia or Venezuela will have a really hard time giving up fossil fuel extraction. But you look at Alberta, and the tar sands are only about a, they've only been exploited at the current level for about a dozen years. We're not asking Alberta to go back to, the, you know, the 19th century or give up some kind of ancient pivotal economy. We're asking them to go back to, you know, the dark ages of 2002. So it was interesting seeing this person who's supposed to be all lovely and green and progressive and certainly is the best case scenario for Alberta just saying, like, no no goddamn way are we backing off from what we see as a pile of money and you see as a pile of destruction. Last question, getting back to the agreement, what will it take for us in the United States to fulfill the goals of the, of the treaty? When will gasoline cars and trucks uh, and be finished in America? You know, I think it's going to be a lot more more than cars. Well, it is a lot more than cars and trucks. I think we need to look at how we generate energy that we use um, in buildings, in manufacturing, et cetera, and, uh, and how we build. And it 
to quote Naomi Klein, this changes everything. I think we're really going to have to rethink how we do um, most of, you know, a lot of the practical things in everyday life. If we're really going to meet the challenge, we're going to need radical change. And that's what's remarkable about the treaty is that countries may not actually get down to implementing it the way they need to, but they have actually acknowledged that we need to leave fossil fuel behind, that we need to change these fundamental things. I think that the science, you know, part of why it's even possible to talk about this kind of stuff is because not only has the science of climate change shown us a more and more grim picture of where we are and where we're going, but the engineering has given us better solutions for getting away from fossil fuel. Basically, as your question indicates, the age of fossil fuel is over. And that's not going to be something that's going to be a gentle transition. That's something that's going to be an epic battle. And this just opens the way for that battle. Or maybe it doesn't even do that because the climate movement has already engaged with uh, the you know divestment, keeping fossil fuel in the ground, defunding uh, subsidies to fossil fuel, and is fighting virtually every fossil fuel project uh, around the country one way or another. And so you know this is this is what's actually going to do it is this work by civil society, by activists, by communities by subnational groups, and we're going to have to step it up. You know, this is not some kind of grand finale, this treaty or agreement, as it's called. Of course it's inadequate. Of course anything that Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and Russia, you know, signed, and the U.S. signed off on is not, you know, green utopia, but it's so far beyond where we were before, and it really does look at, you know, reducing emissions in a way so dramatic, it's only achievable by phasing out fossil fuel pretty nearly completely in the second half of the 20th century and scaling down radically in the 35 years leading up to it. And that's amazing. And it's one of those things that, you know, I'm constantly trying to articulate. How can we acknowledge that it's flawed, it's brutal, and it's also amazing? Rebecca Soldat covered the Paris Climate Talks for Harper's. Thank you, Rebecca. You're welcome, John. There's a new famous Canadian. We know Marshall McLuhan, Wayne Gretzky, Alice Monroe, Leonard Cohen, Martin Short, Naomi Klein, and of course, Justin Bieber. And now we have Justin Trudeau, the new prime minister, whose election marks the end of 10 years of conservative rule. John Powers went to Ottawa to talk to him. John is critic at large on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has an audience of 4 million listeners. He covers film and politics for Vogue and Vogue.com. His work has appeared in The Washington Post, The New York Times, and other places, including The Nation. He's a former professor at Georgetown University and author of the book Soar Winners, A Study of American Culture During President George W. Bush's Administration. John Powers, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. When Justin Trudeau won the Canadian elections, the New York Times was was delighted. They ran an editorial titled An Antidote to Cynicism, and they compared his election to how the Americans felt after Kennedy and after Obama were uh, elected. You were there. You went to Ottawa. You talked to Justin Trudeau. Is is Justin Trudeau sort of uh, the JFK of Canada? Um, 
I guess in the sense that he's, he is a glamorous figure and has a glamorous wife. So, so, so you start with that. He is very youthful and, he's, and he followed on a guy who was – who I think even his admirers thought was a depressing prime minister, Stephen Harper – to suddenly have this new guy there seems very exciting and fresh, even though he wasn't, he wasn't the most progressive candidate, probably, in, in the race. Trudeau, the name is familiar. Yes. You know, he, he, you know, he had a famous dad who was one of the longest-running prime ministers ever, the previous glamorous prime minister that Canada had had, you know, who had dated Barbara Streisand, who was married, who had married a hippie wife who was, you know, almost 30 years younger than he was, who then had her own checkered tabloidy, tabloidy story where partying with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Um, and he, he was a brilliant guy. In addition to everything else, he he wasn't – I don't think we would think of him as being far to the left, but he was progressive in many ways by, by Canadian standards and was a gr- great thinker. I remember I was talking to a historian who said one of the great things about Pierre Trudeau, who was Justin's father, was he always talked the same to everybody. So if he was talking to a group of businessmen, if he, if that day he was interested in constitutional reform – he would talk endlessly about constitutional reform to people who didn't care because he thought it was condescending to the public to not say exactly what you were thinking and talk down to them. I try to bring Richard Nixon into all of our interviews, and there is a Nixon angle to this story. Well, of course. Just when, when Justin was less than one year old, there was a state dinner where, where Nixon p- proposed a toast to the future prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> so that, you know, it, as usual, Nixon was a visionary. Justin Trudeau also made headlines with his remarkable appointments to a cabinet. He opened it up to different kinds of people. So... As he was being sworn in, they announced, and you got to see the surprise on people's faces as they announced who was the minister of justice. Oh, she's actually, I guess we call them Native Americans. They call them Aboriginal Aboriginal Americans as the minister of justice, which is a big deal in Canada because the indigenous population is the most legally abused group. In, in all of Canada. You know, the Minister of Justice, there was, there was a general who everyone thought was going to get the job, but all of a sudden it went, it went to a Sikh. And you thought like, you know, and it's almost inconceivable to imagine that in the U.S., given that just, just the other day, some Sikhs were, did you see this, were thrown out of a football game? Mm-hmm. Yes, and in San Diego, because people didn't know that Sikhs weren't Muslims, people watching on television saw a Sikh take over their defense department. And I understand the cabinet in Canada is now half women. Yes. And Justin uh, Trudeau was asked to explain, and what was his explanation? Oh, oh yes, because it's 2015. I mean, it's it, it's a great answer. I mean, he's he's good at that kind of answer. One of the big deals about him was they thought his legislative record wasn't very impressive. In that respect, he was kind of like Obama. People saying, "Well, what has he actually done?" But the thing that he'd actually done was when he took over the Liberal Party. They were a third-place party that people thought might be finished. And one of their problems was they couldn't get good people to stand for seats. And he put together an impressive slate that everyone thought was an amazing slate, and he did that through force of personality. And I, I talked to more than one person you know, in Canadian who said, that's the impressive thing. Of course, it's hard for us to do a news report without mentioning the words Donald Trump and now I'm going to do what everybody else does. Donald Trump famously opposes admitting 
any Muslims to the United States, President Obama went way out on a limb and said we would take 10,000, but we would spend two years investigating each one of them. What did Justin Trudeau say about admitting Muslim refugees? Oh, he said, I think they were taking 25,000. And the, the first ones arrived and he was there greeting them, giving them things and welcoming them officially to Canada as Canadians. In Canada, there was much less backlash against taking taking the Syrians and then other places, partly because there are an incredible number of immigrants in Canada. And it, 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 that is normal. They were saying one of the, one of the bad things for, Har- for Stephen Harper's re-election campaigns was when he began seeming to be campaigning a- against Islamic people is that the Canadian psyche doesn't like pointing out difference as a bad thing. Um, the, the historian John, you know, John Ralston Saul, who's written a lot about Canadian identity, says the key is that whereas the U.S. is a melting pot country, country, Canada is a country that recognizes difference. So you have the French, you you have the Anglo's, and then you have the native population, and they've always tried to respect all that. And now they have the various immigrant populations, and the whole point is to not merge them into one thing, but to respect it. So when Harper ran against particular groups. That violated some deep Canadian sense of how you do things. I want to talk just a little bit more about Muslims in the world uh, today. Canada has has been one of the countries joining in bombing ISIS centers in Syria. Uh, I know that Trudeau has uh, taken a stand on that. Yes, no, he's 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 against that. I mean, it, it, it's. I mean, he is obviously. I think. A, opposed to, to to ISIS, but he doesn't think that's the best way to go about doing it. You know, so, so it's, I guess, a pragmatic argument rather than an intellectual argument saying, oh, we don't care about it. Um, so, you know, the, the, he's pulling their bombers out. The toughest issue for Justin Trudeau is, is climate change and the environment because of the tar sands in Alberta, the third biggest oil deposit in the world. This is the crude that was supposed to go through the Keystone Pipeline to refineries in Texas. I understand Trudeau supported the Keystone Pipeline. Recently, he went to that Paris climate summit. Where does he stand after Paris on on the tar sands, which is the tar sands are by far the biggest thing in Canada that affects the rest of the world. Oh, I, I, I think he probably will defend them. To put it in, an, in a U.S. context, if you think how long it took President Obama or Hillary Clinton to say to really come out against the Keystone Pipeline, and it matters much, much less to the national economy than the tar sands do to Canada, that it's, it's very hard for any Canadian prime minister to come out against something so economically important to the country. Okay. And, I think I'm, and I think we will probably be disappointed by him maybe all the way through his term. I can't, I, you know, maybe they will put something together. I don't think that he will be a leader, at least with, with the tar sands. On the climate change things in Canada, they're already be kicking him around because what he proposed wasn't that much better than what Stephen Harper proposed. And Stephen Harper wasn't, a, it basically didn't worry about climate change. Um, it, it's a hard issue. And the, the tricky thing with Justin Trudeau is that he's now making decisions. And as he makes decisions, we will find out what he's actually like as opposed to the charming, delightful person. And he was a charming, delightful person that I met. Uh, Let's talk for another minute about the political spectrum in Canada, where Justin Trudeau fits. And and since so much of the world is involved with austerity today, 
what's its place in Canadian politics? It's, well, I think that 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 the Liberal Party that Trudeau represents would be considered the most central of the parties, and he was outflanked on the left in many issues by the New Democratic Party. But the problem they had was they had a reputation for being for being financially irresponsible. So in running for office, they made the decision to say that they would keep with austerity and they wouldn't go into debt. Trudeau, sensing quite rightly that that's a losing position, outflanked them on the left, which turned out to be one of the most decisive issue, issues in the election. He said they would go into debt, they would invest in things. And so what, had, what happened was the seemingly left party got stuck defending austerity in what was, is clearly a tactical blunder in, 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 in the election, because the public actually probably would have wanted them to say the same thing, and they didn't. John Powers, he profiled Justin Trudeau for Vogue magazine. Thank you, John. My pleasure. That's it for today. We spoke with Barbara Ehrenreich about the dying white working class. Rebecca Solnit reported on the Paris Climate Agreement. And John Powers talked about climate and politics in Canada. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Oriano at Emerson College, Los Angeles, which offers a range of courses from social media marketing to TV writing. Find out more at emerson.edu. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat. It's licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on iTunes or at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.